Ecclesiastes, we've gone through several different things on this If the World Was Yours thread. Last week we talked about uh, if the world was yours, then you die anyway, which sounded kind of bad, but it wasn't meant to be bad. It's, it's more along the lines of discipleship, and you should be investing your life in somebody else because you're still going to die. Even if the whole world's yours, you're still going to die. So you need to be investing your life in other people rather than being frustrated because... You're still going to die, and then somebody else is going to get your stuff. Different way of looking at things. So this week, if the world was yours, God's still sovereign. I love the verse. I don't remember where it is. Y'all are probably familiar with it. If I said God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. People quote that all the time to talk about God giving them what they need. Uh, God got the cattle on a thousand hills will give you whatever you want. But if you look at the context of that passage, what God is saying is I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your offering. I don't need your stuff. You're offering me cattle. I own it. That's what he's saying. That cattle belongs to me. What you're bringing to me is the stuff that's already mine. I own all the cattle anyway. And uh, so that's kind of the idea. Even if the whole world was yours, he's still sovereign. So let's go to Ecclesiastes 3. And we're going to approach today kind of with the idea of who is our God, okay? Let me read a little bit of this, and then we'll come back to it. Verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. How many of you are thinking of a song already? You know what I'm saying? I know. (laughs) A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, time to kill, a time to heal. Time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Why do you think he ends that whole little poetic, I guess, refrain right there with what gain is there? Remember, what's he asking when he's saying what gain is there for the toil? He's asked this a couple times. What is it he's trying to figure out? Profit. Yeah, what's the profit? What's the, when I take everything I spend and I balance it against everything that comes in, what I got left for my work? So that's what he's asking here. What's the profit? Well, what's going on here is he gives 14 positives and 14 negatives, sort of. 14 opposites. Here's one side and here's the other side. 14 and 14. So if I take 14 and I minus 14, what do I have left? Zero. <laughs> So it's almost the same thing. He's saying, what's my profit? I got nothing. For all of it, it doesn't matter. For every good, there's a bad. For every bad, there's a good. For every one side, there's another side. And he's saying, so why bother? Well, let's go back and look at it now slower and see. Verse 1 says, everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. If I didn't read another verse, what does that already tell you about who our God is? Just what you can observe about God from that one verse. Huh? He he has everything in order. Which means there's an order to things. And also means that he has control of that. Yep. What else? That's awesome. Yeah. He's not just saying under the sun here. He's saying under heaven in this case because you're exactly right. He's talking about the universe as a whole, everything. You're exactly right. Everything that is not eternal or under under heaven itself. That's very, that's very important because he says there's a season and a time, but heaven is outside of that. 
which means heaven is eternal. So these are the things that are under heaven. Heaven's eternal. Things under heaven all have a season and a time. What else does it tell you? He has it in order, as Chuck said, but what else does it tell you about that? No, not everything's the same. It's not going to be the same for everybody, but everything has one. Everything has a season. Not every season's necessarily the same, but everything has one. It also tells you that he is, as, as, I, as we're calling this, still sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. Look at what he's saying here. Now, this is huge. The only way that he could say that everything has a season and a time is if he was able to control that. He says under heaven because these are things that are in time. And that time is limited. So here, here he describes what he means, clarifies. Verse 2, time to be born and a time to die. We're not going to look at each individual thing intensely, but some of them we will. This first one is a, a big one. Time to be born and a time to die. So we, does that mean that we all have an appointment with death? Yes, we know that. But what this is telling you is there is a time. It's not like God's just randomly waiting on you to finish. He has an extent to your life. Now you got cases where, forget who's the king, who's the king that prayed and he extended Hezekiah? He extended his life, but he extended it a set amount of time. Either way, uh, you don't have to turn to it. In 1 Kings 2, David says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. But it says his time to die. Everybody has one. Psalm 139. Flip over there. You're probably really familiar with this. But go to Psalm 139. This chapter in Ecclesiastes goes real well with Psalm 139. And and we're not going to study this in depth. I'm just going to read it. used to have it memorized, but I don't have it as clean, so I'm not going to quote it. We'll just read it. Verse 1. O Lord, you search me and known me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. I love that imagery. It's like he's cupping his hands around you on top and in front and behind and everything. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. It's, it's too much to comprehend. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, whatever, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What that saying is, is poetic language for saying that moment when the sun cracks over the horizon of the ocean, when it first cracks over and the speed that light travels across the ocean he's saying if i moved that fast across the ocean your hand would still lead me and your other hand would carry me um verse 11 if i say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me would be night even the darkness is not dark to you the night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you he sees everything you form, here we go, for you form my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a euphemism for the womb. And he's saying that God intricately wove him together. In the womb. Now this is a favorite place for abortion arguments, which is great. It should be. But what I'm looking at is there's a time to be born and a time to die. God has put all these. Look at verse 16. God has put all these things in place. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. What is that? You ever thought about that for a minute? What does that mean? What is unformed and substance? (laughs) I can't even, I can't explain those, those two words seem to be opposite of each other. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet, what? There was none of them. 
Now, I'm not trying to go all off into the deep end here. We can go way into a rabbit hole that I'm not, I'm not intending to wrestle into. I just want you to see here that without a doubt, there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And so, as Chuck said, yeah, he's, he's in control of things and things have a, a plan, but he, he is sovereign over it. He's not just riding the wave here. He's in control of it. So go back to Ecclesiastes 3. So there's a time for everything, a season for everything. There's a time to be born, a time to die, already set, and then he goes on. And we're looking, it helps to think we're looking at God here. Not trying to see, okay, I should do this and I should do that. What we're trying to think of is the way God, our God works right now. We're just trying to think of who our God is when we're reading this. So verse 3, a time to kill. That's not the word murder. The word in Exodus twenty thirteen, where he says, thou shalt not kill, that word is murder. Or what we would call murder. This is a different Hebrew word, but it does mean to take a life. So I'll come back to it. Time to kill, a time to heal. Time to break down, and a time to build up. The author's kind of intentionally vague on some of this stuff. So some people say that's talking about to a person. Like there's a time to break it down for you where you can understand clear and there's a time for I build you up. But I don't think so because I doubt in, you know, 1000 B.C. they knew what let me break it down for you means. You know what I mean? So I think what's being said here is more about building things. There's time to break things down and there's a time to build things up. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. That's obvious. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Those two are tied together. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Weeping and mourning go together. Laughing and dancing go together. Even though some people would disagree, they do. Mourning is the idea there of a funeral. So there's a time for, there's a time to mourn. You know, when when people are at a funeral or when people have a, a loss or when people are hurting, it's it, it's it's okay for people to hurt. There's a time to do that, okay? And they should, and they need to, and they need to cry. All those things are okay. There's also a time to laugh, and there's also a time to dance. So if uh, mourning is a funeral, where do you think dancing would go? Wedding, exactly. It's the same kind of idea at a wedding. Now I know it says dance in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 150 says, praise him with the tambourine and what? Dance. Yeah. In fact, Psalm 150 describes a heavy metal band if you go look at it. I'm <laughs> just saying loud clanging cymbals and pounding drums and all. It says all that mess. So dancing is in the word. I don't care if you like it or not. I can't dance. I can't dance worth a flip. So I, I don't dance. But uh, and I'm not going to stand up here and be that guy that's opposing every Baptist church because I'm in one and I, I'm on staff in one. And I don't think we need to be dancing all through the church service or any of that mess. And I'm not standing against any objections to the idea that we're just going to keep it out. That's fine. I don't care. But I am saying it's in the word. It's not like any form of dancing is wrong. It's there. In fact, he says there's a time for it. Okay. And if you say, no, there's never a time, dancing should never happen, well, then don't ever cry either. Because it says there's a time for that. And don't laugh, and don't kill, and don't break down, and don't heal, and don't do any of that. Because it says there's a time for all that too. You can't just weed out the one you want. So anyway, all right, enough about that. Look at verse 5. It says there's a time to cast stones and a time to gather stones together. Again, the temptation there is to think about Jesus or saying, let him who has without sin cast the first stone. But that's not what it's talking about. What do you think it's talking about? Could be, an, huh? Could be like worship. And, and I'm not just saying that. This is really true. This is why I said the author's kind of vague here. So it could be there's times to take the altar and tear it down. And there's times to build one. Could be that. Uh, it could be just there's times when you're cleaning up uh, to build or whatever. There's times to clear stones away and there's times to stack them up. Be, be the same principle as the altar, but maybe you're talking about a home or a temple or anything. Uh, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. It's a good one to remember, too. I got written in my Bible, hello, 
right there because y'all know me i'm a hugger and there's some people that aren't and sometimes i have to remember that don't do that (laughs) you know (laughs) verse six says there's a time to seek and a time to lose i don't like that one so much why do you think he says there's a time to lose And he's not talking about a sporting event here because he's contrasting it with seeking something. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not so much a... Well, it could be. It could be. could be. She said give up. It could be that. It says what? Yeah, that's the idea. It's in context of something that's lost rather than winning a game or a wrestle or something like that. That's exactly what it is. So, yeah, it could be give up, but in the context of looking for something. So why would, and and they call it losing. So why would that be, why would there be a time for that? Remember, these are things that God's put in place that he's saying here. Yeah. I think you're right. If he's taking it away, we need to accept that it's gone. There are some things that I think we'd all agree in our own lives that it's a good thing that got lost at the end of the day, you know. Or at the end of a month or six months or a year or however long it took you to get over it. There are some things that is probably better, probably better that they got lost. Because you let it go. Yeah, you, you got to let go of it and say, okay, there's a time where that's not just, I'm done with it. It's gone. All right. Huh? Yeah. Well, I would think that your kids are a little different. You have to weigh out what it is. You can't say, or one of y'all were, yeah, you were saying it's not the same for everything. So you can't make it a general for everything. But I could say this. I could say there's a time when you've lost, you might have lost a kid, you know, in your life. Easy for me to say, I know I haven't. But you might have lost a child or someone who's passed away. And there comes a time you have to let go or lose that in that sense. You're not really losing, but maybe in that sense. Instead of continuing to seek that person or seek that thing or seek whatever it may be. Yep. Oh, that's a great one. What is it? Matthew 10, what? 39. Whoever seeks this life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Something like that. It's good. So he says uh, there's a time to keep and a time to cast away. Kind of the same idea. There's a time to seek something. There's a time to keep it. There's a time to lose something. There's a time to get rid of it. So rather than have to lose and say, okay, it's gone, there's times where you just got to be the one who takes the initiative to get rid of it. Verse 7, there's a time to tear and a time to sow. That's obvious. Time to keep silent and a time to speak. Jeez, that one's huge. Got that one big bold in my Bible. I brought my D group uh, recently through proverbs and i gave them a whole bunch of proverbs to memorize not that they had to memorize all of them i gave them some options i said here's about five or six and you guys just pick one or two that you want to memorize and uh, they were all on the same general idea and that's on keeping your mouth shut because that's the problem for all of us really but you don't have to turn to them you can note them but you don't have to turn to them so here's a few of them and remember solomon wrote these too proverbs 13 3 whoever guards his mouth preserves his life he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. It's pretty good. Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. That's pretty good. Even a fool who keeps his mouth shut is considered wise. Even if you were crazy, if you never say anything, nobody's going to know it. You know what I mean? They're going to be like, wow, he's, he must be really smart because he's not saying anything. Proverbs 18.2, this is one of my favorite. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. fool takes no pleasure in understanding, only in expressing his own opinion. Verse 7 of eight, chapter 18, Proverbs 18 has several of them. Verse 2, verse 7 says, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Verse 13 If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That's a good one, too. If you start answering before you hear what's being said, you're a fool. You're going to sound like an idiot. 
And I know plenty of people that do that. Nobody in this room. I love all of you. But I know plenty of people that I'll be asking a question or starting to say, hey, did you something? And they're already answering me. You know, and I'm like, well, hold on. You don't even know what I'm going to say. But on the flip side, there is a time to speak. So give me an example of that. All these times where he says, be cautious, keep your mouth shut, be cautious, keep your mouth shut. Where's the time biblically where you should throw down caution and speak? In fact, huh? Yeah. If it's the truth, you need to say it. In love, you said it a good way. Give me a biblical character. In fact, time is related to it. There was such a time where speaking was incredibly important for this woman. Esther, in Esther chapter 4, if you keep silent at this time, doesn't say God can't work. Remember, God's sovereign. He said he will raise up somebody else. But it could be that you're here for such a time as this. Y'all know that. So there is a time when you open your mouth. Ecclesiastes 3, back where we were, verse 8. Here comes the heavy, the bomb. Uh, a time to love and a time to hate. And I'm going to tie killing in here. We'll come back to it. A time for war and a time for peace. What's interesting here is he's offset these. Like the others, when you had four, like when you had um, in verse six, uh, there's a time to seek, there's a time to keep, there's a time to lose and cast away. Seek and keep are the same. Lose and cast away are kind of the same. But here he's flipping them. He's saying love and war. And hate and peace. Love and peace we get. So I'm not going to spend any time on that one. I think everybody gets that. There's a time for love. There's a time for peace. The question is, when is there a time to hate? And is there ever a time for war? Saw a bumper sticker today. I was behind it on the way to the church. That literally said, war is never the option. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not having a... Republican NRA conversation here, so let's not go there. But I am just talking about the word. Is there a time for war? It's easy, guys. It's easy. The answer is yes, because it just said there is a time for war. So you don't have to be you don't don't have to be worried about how you answer it. The answer is you just read it. There is a time for war. Now you can think about Joshua and all of the countless wars that Joshua fought at the hand of God and all that stuff. But you don't even have to say that. Is there a time for war? Well, yeah, there's a time for a war. It says it, plain as day. Now, the wrestle is with what we do with that. Well, let's look at hate first, okay? And then we'll look at war real quick. Y'all know me. I can stand here and give you all a bunch of arguments, but I don't like doing that because when we walk out of here, you'd be like, David is crazy, or what's David talking about, or I totally don't agree with David. It's easier for me to give you scripture and say, you can, so y'all can go home and say, what is the Bible saying? Because it's easier that you don't like it than deal with God on it. You don't have to fight me about it. Let me start in a, uh, a nasty one. Go to Malachi. Let go of Ezekiel. We'll come back to it. But go to Mal- I mean Ezekiel. Whew. Ecclesiastes. We'll come back to it. But go to Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is speaking for God. And he says in verse 2, God speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hills and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. In Romans chapter 9, you'll have to turn to it. Romans chapter 9 quotes this discussion, uses the same language again. So what do we make of this? Good thing it's simple, huh? Let me ask you this. Let's start right here. Just what is it about this that bothers you? Huh? We're told to love our enemies. God says, Esau, I have hated. It's rough. You read that and you're like, wait, what? God hates them? Why would God hate Esau? That's not right. Why does God hate Esau?
Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but does that make it any easier? Okay. <laughs> the, the, the desire is to go into the word hated and say, well, it doesn't really mean hate like we think hate. It must mean whatever. But the problem is no matter which way you go, you're going to come to the conclusion, and the conclusion is still not satisfactory. It still doesn't work. It's still going to leave you frustrated. So I'm going to tell you I don't have an answer that's going to make you feel better necessarily, but I will tell you that there is something the Lord hates. What? Sin. So the question here, take some time to accept this, but if you can get this in your head, it'll help you deal with these passages a lot better. So it makes perfect sense that God hated Esau. That's not a problem. Y'all just said it. He hates sin. Esau was sinful. Who else is sinful? Me. Who else on this page in that verse is sinful? Jacob. So here's the question. Why does he love Jacob? Now, that's the question. That's the one you want to wrestle with. Why he hated Esau is not a problem. Because we know he hates sin and Esau was sinful, just like we are all sinful. And you can ask yourself the same question. And this is what Paul's trying to get to in Romans 9 is the issue is not that God hated some. Of course, God hated. He hates sin. The issue is why does he save anybody? Why does he love anybody? And that's grace. Okay, that's what we call grace. That's the real weight of what we call grace. So here he's saying, I love you. This is what gets me about it. People get so hung up on God, hate, and Esau. What does the first four words say? I have loved you. I mean, he's saying, I love you. That right there, I don't, that's the hard part. Why, God, why do you love me? You don't have to turn to it. Amos 5. Verse 15 says, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. So God is telling you, or he's telling Israel in this case, but obviously it's transferable. He's saying, hate evil, love good. We're supposed to do that. So you are commanded to hate something. And there's countless verses. Romans 12, 9 is another one. Let your love... Let love be genuine. Abhor is what my ESV says, but it's the, it's the Greek word hate. What is evil? Hold fast to what is good. So I don't care if you're looking at Old Testament or New Testament. I don't care if you're looking at Israel or the church. There is a time to hate. What are you supposed to hate? Sin. Yeah, you're supposed to hate evil. Psalm 97.10. Just note these. You don't turn Psalm 97.10. Oh, you... Who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. He literally said that. If you love the Lord, hate evil. He's not, not, not saying you should or you ought to. He's telling you to. And in fact, there's an exclamation point in my Bible. Uh, Psalm 101.3. This is, I, we talked about this before, but this is the verse I was telling you all about. This is a great one to memorize. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I Hate the work of those that are falling away. So, I'll give you an example. I hate pornography. I don't like love it less. You know, I, I don't want to hate anything. So, I don't hate it. I just love it less. Like, I love my wife, and then I love pornography less than my wife. That's ridiculous. And if you, said, if you, if you ever say that to your wife, you're going to find out how ridiculous it is. It is ridiculous. You don't say that. It, 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 it destroys you. It destroys your family. It destroys everything. Cancer. I love cancer less than the common cold. Now, it's killing your mom. No, you don't. It's taking your dad. It's doing whatever. You, you hate it. You know, those kind of things are where you look at them and you have a sense of hate towards it. And that's what he's saying. There's a time to hate. Psalm, Proverbs 16.4, and this one is a rough one, but boy, is it good. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. So even Esau, even Jacob, even Esau is something that God made for a purpose. So let's look at the war side of things. That's the hate side. Let's look at the war side. The war side, does God ever do war? Okay, go to Psalm. I want you to see this one. Go to Psalm 144. Uh, I'll show you a couple here. 
Psalm 144. David talking. Very first verse. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Who trains his hands for war? The Lord. Do you see what he's saying? Now, you could say, well, he's talking about a spiritual battle. No, he's not. This is David. Why did David get prevented from building the temple? Because he had killed. He had blood on his hands. He had been a violent, a man of violence. And he said, you're not going to build my temple. He wasn't cursing him because God led him to do these things. He's just saying, your purpose is not building the temple. Your purpose is conquering the land. I got somebody else's purpose. In, it's your son. He'll build the temple. But Right here, he's saying that's the Lord who trains my hands for war. Now, if that's not what that means, then what does it mean? He's not talking about spiritual here. He's talking about physical. He's saying, thank you, God, for training my hands for war. You don't have to uh, go to it. But Second Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, they are both identical. Both of those chapters are the same thing. So David wrote the psalm, but Psalm 2 Samuel 22 records it. So in both of those places, he verse 34 in 2 Samuel 22 says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. There's nothing spiritual about that. He's saying he trains my hands for war so I can bend a bow and shoot an arrow. Why would he train you for war? Unless there's a time for it. There is a time for it. We know so because it says there's a time for it. It didn't say you have to like it. It just says there's a time for it. And he says he trains us. So why would that be? Let me tell you something. If, if, try to think how I want to word this carefully. War will find you. Because you, you're born into one. We all say that, right? You're born into a spiritual war, and the spiritual war is spilled over into the earthly war. You may never see war in your lifetime. That may just so happen. I can't imagine how it'd be possible right now, because in my lifetime, America's already been in countless wars. We just are blind. We, we don't. We've been so dominant in them that we don't see any of it here. Obviously, there hadn't been war here other than Pearl Harbor for the most part and the terror acts. But but it'll come to you whether you go to... Well, there you go. 9-11 is a great example of it. It came here despite the fact that the church prays or whatever. And is it because the church stopped praying that it... Ha- you know what? All that stuff's crazy. War will find you. You're in a battle. You're in a place where... Not everybody's going to agree with you that war is the last result. It's going to find you if you don't find it. And I'll prove it to you. Go to Exodus 13 and uh, I'll show you something. And then I'll tell you how we decide when's the right time. So Exodus 13, because there's another side to this where people race off to it constantly. It's the first choice. Exodus 13 is... The exodus from, the literal exodus when they come out of Egypt and they go about their way. Verse, uh, let's see, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Where were the Philistines at? Do you know? If you're looking at a map. Yeah, Gaza Strip, modern-day Gaza Strip, okay? That's where they are. So if you're in Egypt, some of y'all have been to Egypt. If you're in Egypt and you're trying to get to Israel, Egypt's on the Mediterranean, Israel's on the Mediterranean, this is a no-brainer. Shoop right up around and you're there. But God didn't do that. God took them all the way out into the desert. Part of that was to go to Mount Sinai, but this is telling you there was more to it than that. Why did he take them the long way around? Well, watch this. He didn't go by the land of the Philistines or the Gaza Strip by our language, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, which means he knew they're going to run into it. When they come through Gaza, they're going to run into war. 
It's going to happen. And when they do, they're going to come home. They're going to, or they're not come home, excuse me. They're going to run home back to Egypt instead of going where I'm sending them. But God, verse 18, led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So he gave them resources. They were equipped for battle. And they went up out of Egypt. But he took them a long way around by the Red Sea. Part of that was to show them the sea split and all of that kind of thing and his power and whatnot. But what happens to them when they do show up in Jericho the first time? When they first come to the promised land, what happens? They're terrified. Why? Yeah, the people look giant. Either way, whether they're literal giants, which I believe they are, many of them were or not, is irrelevant. The point was they didn't think they could beat them. So they did exactly what he said. When they saw war, they turned around and said, we're going home, even though he'd let them out. So y'all know the story. Since they didn't have faith in him, they wander in the wilderness 40 years and a generation dies off. But they don't just wander aimlessly. What do they do for that time period? Do you know? What ends up happening on their way back to the promised land? When they get back to Jericho the second time, and you can go read it in your own time. When they get back there the second time, and and Joshua sends the spies in, and Rahab says the whole city is terrified because of what happened at the Red Sea 40 years ago, and two other things. You know what they are? They've heard what you did to the king of the Amorites and to the king, the other king, Og and Sihon, these two kings that were right outside the border of their own place. So what was God doing as they were moving back to the promised land? He was training their hands for war. They were fighting battles in the wilderness. You can go back and read it. I'm not making it up. It's in there. Go back and read it in Numbers. Go back and read it in Joshua, even before, right at the beginning of Joshua where they're fighting battles on their way back into the promised land. So when they show back up, bring on the giants. You know, they're ready to go now. Part of it's faith and part of it is, well, all of it's faith, but it's also the fact that he's trained their hands for war. Okay? So, why, or not why, but how do you know when is the right time? Because this is where we come into the big problems. Should we go blow up this country? Should we race off to war with that country? Should we invade this country? How do you know when is the right time? Uh, well, there's two ways I can tell you that the Bible tells you. One is Proverbs 20. Just turn over there just because I just want you to see the one verse. And it's only one verse, but I want you to see it. Psalms, Proverbs 20. Again, Solomon, verse 18, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. So what's he saying? Nobody makes that decision by themselves, period. That's that counsel. You get wise, not just any counsel, but wise counsel. You better have really wise people around you. That are giving you good, godly counsel, wise counsel that are saying that this is what we need to do. This is the right thing to do. This is what needs to happen. We need to do something and this is what we have to do. So it's not one man's decision saying, oh yeah, we're going to go blow these people up or we're going to race into this country or we're going to do whatever. It is a wise counsel based decision. So that should be number one. Not just counsel either, wise counsel. Uh, it's questionable half the time what what wise counsel is by our standards, but you all know what it is by biblical standards. Wise guidance. The other one is in First Kings eight. So go over there again, Solomon. First Kings eight, and this is when the temple gets built, and Solomon is dedicating the temple. And uh, he's offering a prayer of dedication, which is an awesome prayer. And he says in verse 44, he's talking to God. He says, God, it's 1 Kings 8, 44. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, 
So he's saying that they're going because they've got wise counsel in God. You've sent them to battle and they've gone. And they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So wise counsel and prayer. And that sounds like a duh, but it's not. That's a very serious thing. Wise counsel that says, yes, this is what we need to do. Wise counsel that has already been praying and says, yes, this is what we need to do. We feel like God is leading us to do this. And then you make that decision and then you continue to pray and you continue to pray and you continue to pray. Um, people nowadays, my, my generation probably and younger certainly really feels like in every way war is just awful. And it is. There's nothing pretty about it. War is hell. That's a not a cliche. That's a, that's a truth. But if Hitler had not been stopped, no matter how vicious it, it was, no matter how bad it was to make that happen, what do you think this world would look like right now? You know? Do you feel like no politics? Okay, I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested in any politics. I'm just saying. Do you feel like America ought to, ought to do something if you had the ability or whatever? Do you feel, no, let's not even say America. Do you feel like somebody ought to do something about ISIS? I do. There are people that are, you know, and 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 we. I don't know about y'all. We watch our media, which is impossible to trust. But our media makes it makes it like we're not nobody's doing enough. Why are they still spreading? Why are they still doing whatever? Listen, if somebody is raping people and cutting their heads off and finding ways to make people die in the most excruciating way possible and then publicizing it on television and on the Internet just for shock value, that junk needs to be stopped. And I don't care what it costs. Easy for me to say I'm not in the military, nor do I have someone in the military. I got friends in the military, but there is a time for war there is doesn't mean it has to be pretty doesn't mean you have to like it and listen the israelites died too when they went to wars it wasn't like they walked out unscathed there were people that were lost among israel as well so let's finish real quick look at verse ecclesiastes 3 go back over there so in light of all of this remember we're trying to picture who God is here. God is, is all of these things. We're looking at these things in terms of how God governs his creation, how God is sovereign over everything. He says, what gain or what profit has the worker for his toil? What's the point? The believer's Bible commentary says, the lingering question in Solomon's mind was, what lasting gain has the worker for all of his toil? For every constructive activity, there's a deconstructive one. For every plus, there's a minus. For 14 positive works are canceled out by 14 negatives. So the mathematical formula of life is 14 minus 14 equals zero. <laughs> Man has nothing but a zero at the end of it all. But you got to not look at this as a man's perspective. you got to not look at it as how does this benefit man. Look at it to see who our God is. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. I think about Genesis one thirty one. He looked and he saw all things were good. All the things that he created and it was good. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Here's our theme verse. Genesis one twenty seven. I think about that. God created us in his image. Uh, eternal. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is an awesome verse to remember. The secret things belong to God. The hidden things he's given to man. There are some things we just don't understand. Listen, that's not a complicated verse, even though it looks like it. Man cannot find. He's put eternity into your heart, but you can't find what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is real easy. You ever spend a few minutes trying to imagine eternity? You cannot possibly do it. I saw some illustration way back when. They were talking about a bird picking up a grain of sand on an ocean shore one side on one side of the world and flying to the other side and putting it down and picking up the one from the spot where he put it down and flying to the other side. However long it took for him, this bird, to swap out all of the sands of the shores of the seas on each side uh, would only be a scratch on the edge of eternity or whatever. You know, 
just not just not possible. You just can't put your brain around eternity. Yeah, it it never quits. Yeah, my 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 daughter said one one point along the line, she was like, I don't remember how old she was, but she's like, I don't. And she was after her, you know, turning her life to Christ. But she said, I don't know, I want to live forever. And I was like, I, I understand what you're saying. She's like, I, I was like, you think you'll get bored? And she was like, Yeah, I don't know. She said, I don't know. But but the problem is you can't you can't think of it. You can't. No, you have no reference. There's nothing in all of your history, present or future that. Nothing that has a that, that doesn't end. Everything does. You could take a tank and put it in the desert. Eventually, it's, it may take a thousand years, but it's going to dissolve. I mean, everything decays, dissolves, or ends. Everything. So you have no concept of what eternity means. You can't. You cannot put your brain around it. Yet inside, you desire it. What kind of sense does that make? Why do you desire something that's in, beyond your ability to fathom? whatsoever because it's put there yeah and that's what he's saying is that he's done it and that's awesome he's saying all this concern about time this time that time this time that well he put eternity into your heart he gave you a gift he gave you a gift he made he said he's given you a gift he's made it he's given it to us and it's eternity look at verse 12 here's where we make it practical i perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful to do good as long as they live, this would be us. So I perceive that there is nothing better for us than to be joyful and to do good as long as we live under the sun. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all our toil. It is God's gift to man. That's a great thing. It's a gift. I think about like this. I, I wrote this down, so I'm going to kind of read it, but I wrote it a while back for myself to try to wrestle through this but i said it's like a runner preparing for a race that he hopes to do well in but may not likely win he runs and runs hard which is work and toil but he enjoys the race and he enjoys the run and he even enjoys the difficulty of it it's the same principle but with the added detail of not knowing the ending from the beginning it's just like you didn't know beforehand when you were going to enter the race in terms of being born. You didn't know when you were going to be born. You also don't know when you're going to finish it. You don't know when your death is. So you run hard, but you enjoy the work. My grandfather used to say, pace yourself. You don't know where the finish line is, which is a great truth. You, never, you don't know when you're going to die. You know it's coming. You don't know when, so there's no reason to sprint. There's no reason to park. You pace yourself. But anyway, I so said, I like to run. But I have to be outside. This is, I'm talking, again, I'm writing this about myself. I like to run, but I have to be outside seeing people and rivers and mountains and trees and animals uh, and even buildings and houses. It brings me joy when I run. It makes me want to go around the next corner, even when it's hurting me to keep going. The point is that you're running and working hard at life, but your joy comes from something else. Something that happens while you're running at life. But it's bigger than the act itself. We are under the sun. Our joy comes from having eternity in our hearts. From knowing that there is more and that one day the race will finish and we'll be home. So we toil, but we have joy in it because there's something bigger than the work itself. God gave it to us and we see him in it. And that's kind of the idea, if that made sense, of what's going on here. Verse 14, we're about finished two verses. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is why it is not only sinful, but it is futile to try to add words to the Bible. You know, the Revelation 22, whoever adds or takes away from these words, you know, a curse on them. You don't have to put a curse on them. It, the truth is you can't add to them and you can't take away from them. That's what he's saying. Whatever he's done is done. It's going to be there. It's there now. It's always going to be. Verse 15, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what he has driven, has been driven away. I think about Balaam when I read this in Numbers 23 and 24. He tried to curse the people of Israel. And God said, you can't curse what I've blessed. 
And every time he tried, it turned into a blessing. It's like you can try all you want, but it doesn't matter. It's done. It's already set. It's there. I think when I think about what's the whole point here, basically God is sovereign, plain and simple. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10, we'll get to that chapter in a minute, but I mean uh, in the future, but verse 10 real quick says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than him. What does he mean by that? Man's not able to dispute with one stronger than him. Paul would put it like this, who are you to argue with God? Has not the potter the right to make out of the clay whatever he wants? Same thing. God's stronger than you. You're not going to argue. He's sovereign. Even if you gain the whole world, he's still sovereign. He's still superior. He's the creator of the past. He's the creator of the present. And he's the creator of the future. So he's still in control of it all, whether you're sitting on top of it all or not. Another thing I would say is enjoy life. Your time, that's what he's talking about here, your time on earth, enjoy it, not endure it. Big difference. Enjoy it. How can you enjoy it? How do you enjoy it if the world's going to hate you? Refer back to number one. God is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future. (laughs) And if you're in a relationship with him, man, have a great time. Enjoy, enjoy it. Don't turn it into a, a burden that you, you know, a wearisome, toilsome, whatever. You know what? Enjoy it. That's what he said. That, that's a gift from God. I'll close with this. Molly and I were watching a show the other day, and, and it was just a real emotional moment where this guy was losing his wife in a, in a car accident, and the wife was in a, in a bed. She ended up living, but, she, but for a while you thought she was going to die. And uh, he's man sitting there with her. And uh, he's real upset. And they're they're young, very young. Uh, and it was like, I was sitting there thinking about it for a minute. And I was like, you know, I don't know how people get through that without prayer. Anything like that. It, because they're not believers. So I'm like, if if I couldn't pray, at the least, if I couldn't pray, how could you possibly get through something like that? And that's the idea. Is that you can enjoy life because no matter what happens, you got him, you know. You got him. He's with you. He's there. All right, I'm going to pray because we're out of time.